If you're a guest with us, I'm glad that you're here this morning. My name's Rob. I'm one of the guys that gets to teach, and I'm, I'm honored to do so this morning. Uh, we're in a teaching series, so if you have a Bible, you can turn your Bible on or open it up. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of the, uh, in, below the seat in front of you, and that's our gift to you. Take it, keep it. Uh, I want you to have it. Take notes in it, underline, uh, take it with you. Uh, we want you to have that. Um, we are in a series in 2 Peter that we're calling Step Up. And uh, we are in a journey around here, specifically this year. One of the things that we say around here all the time is that we just simply want to be disciples making disciples. And so this year we're on this journey to hone in on what specific elements of discipleship we really want to bring our attention and focus to as we walk with Jesus. Our goal is simply to follow him. That's what disciple means. And so we want to mature in our faith. And this year, we thought, what better way to launch out the year that we're going to bring so much attention and focus to this idea of discipleship than Second Peter, which challenges us as followers of Jesus to step up, to take that next step, to look at what's in front of you and say, I have the courage, I have the ability because of what Jesus has done to take that next step in my maturity with Jesus. And so we're excited this year to be on that journey. Um, and I'm excited this morning to continue in Second Peter chapter 2. We started last week. We're going to finish chapter 2 um, this week. But I want to open us up with a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to just speak to us as we uh, look at his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. God, for the freedom that we have to be together. God, thank you for the promise that as you sent us to live on this mission, of people who are disciples, that are making disciples. God, I thank you that you promised to go with us every step of the way. That, God, that you not only gave us your presence on this journey, but, Father, you promised us that we would have each other to journey with as well. So I'm grateful this morning, together, as we open your word, through the work of your spirit, that it might penetrate and change our hearts. God, may we leave here different than when we arrived. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a friend who I visit uh, sometimes in southern Indiana, and, and on my way down there, the route that I take, uh, I pass uh, a building that looks very similar to this building here. I don't know if you guys uh, would recognize this right off the bat. This is a Walmart distribution center, and uh, not a big deal. You maybe pass by them. They're scattered through Indiana, but they're pretty impressive buildings, um, let me, let me tell you a little bit about this. This building is 800,000 square feet, and it sits on 50 acres of land. A little bit of perspective, the building you're sitting in, the entire building, is 33,000 square feet and sits on 40 acres of land. So this is a massive, giant, big building. And as I drive by, I'm just curious, why do they have so much space? Come to find out, each one of these buildings that are scattered all over the world for Walmart costs $55 million to construct. It's a lot of money. It's a big building project. $55 million. And I, I, why would you make such an investment in a building like this? Come to find out, Walmart is one of the top retailers on the entire planet. Compa comparing with every other retailer in the world, they're at the very top. They, uh, in each day of the week, a building like this will go through $10 million worth of merchandise. Collectively, all of the Walmart distribution centers globally deal with $244 billion worth of merchandise every year. See, Walmart understands they need this building because if you've ever walked into a Walmart, except around here when it snows, which I'm still trying to get used to after seven years, the milk and bread are gone. But other than the milk and bread, 
because everybody flips out and thinks the world's coming to an end. Other than that, at a Walmart, you rarely see an empty shelf. When you come into Walmart and you see a shelf, it's rarely going to be empty because they have come to find out that in order to sell, you have to stock. And so these distribution centers, you come to find out, employ 600 people day and night, constantly. There are 45 loading docks that are never empty. 24 hours a day, there are trucks backed up to the loading dock. Because Walmart understands that what they put on the shelf in the, in the distribution center will ultimately be distributed to all the stores. And what they stock the shelves with in the stores will ultimately go to affect many of the lives of the people that are buying this merchandise. They understand that what goes on the shelf is going to come off the shelf. So they have to continually stock the shelves. And why this fascinates me so much is because I'm convinced that what is true physically with the Walmart distribution center is also true spiritually in our lives. Your heart is a distribution center of sorts. And what you put on the shelves of your heart will ultimately be transferred into your life and into the lives of the people that are all around you. And Jesus spoke very clearly of this principle in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, when he said these words, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. So the good person stocks good on their heart and they produce good. The transaction is good. You stock the shelves of your heart with good, good comes out, he says, but the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance, your translation might say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, anybody like me, show of hands, anybody ever said something that they wish they didn't say? Anybody? We are not alone in this room, right? Now, you've spoken words aimed at somebody, and if you're like me, you wish those words were physical, because when they left your mouth, you'd like nothing more than to run and catch them before they hit the target they were aimed at. Because in that moment, you realized, oh no, I shouldn't have said that. And so you scramble, like I do, and you try to apologize over. You try to do everything you can. Look, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. I wish I didn't say that, right? But what Jesus is saying here is it's not what you really mean by that. It's not, I wish I didn't say that. It's, I wish you didn't see that. What you're saying is, I wish for a moment you didn't see my real identity. I wish for a moment you didn't see what I've been stocking on the shelves of my heart. I wish just for that moment with those words, I didn't give you a glimpse into what I really feel and who I really am and what I've really invested in my heart. You see, Jesus understood that what you stock on the shelves of your heart is ultimately going to manifest itself in your life and in the lives of the people that are all around you. This principle is one of the ones that Peter is going to want us to learn in the second part of 2 Peter chapter 2. Last week, we looked at the first nine verses. And it was a little bit intense. And Peter began to say, hey, there's going to come a time in the church. And we looked at Paul in Acts chapter 20, where Paul also said, hey, the, the false teachers are coming. And when they come, it's not going to be this loud proclamation. Hey, we're here. It's going to be this subtle, gradual decline. And they're going to come in and they're going to creep in and they're going to start to teach people different things. And they're going to try to infiltrate the church, and they're going to try to seduce people that are around them. And we learned last week that Peter says externally, when you look at the outside, here's what you should be looking for in a false teacher. And when you encounter false teaching, we had a tool. He said three things that you do to deal with this false teacher. And if you remember last week, we used these flags. If you weren't here, these flags represent these three words that you see on the screen. When you encounter false teaching, the first thing you do is you recognize it. Uh, the yellow flag. We said it's not quite like, I didn't put a yellow light up here because most of you think yellow light means goes faster, but really it means slow down and prepare to stop. You recognize false teaching. You have to see it. And the first thing that you do is you notice it. 
because you understand what the word of God teaches and you know that 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 just doesn't seem right. The next thing you do is you rebuke it. You stop everything. You wave the red flag. This is not biblical teaching. We've got to stop everything that's going on and I'm going to rebuke that false teaching with the word of God. The third thing is we replace it. You have to replace false teaching with God's truth, with the promises of God. So you wave the green flag. Instead of going that direction, we go this direction because that's false teaching. This is proper teaching. And Peter said in the first nine verses of chapter two, you recognize, you rebuke, and you replace these false teachings because they will present themselves in the church and you have to be able to deal with them. You recognize, you rebuke, you replace. Well, now we're going to shift to verses 10 through 22. And in these verses, Peter's going to lay something out for us. He's going to say, look, externally, you've got to notice these false teachers. You've got to keep your eyes open. You've got to be aware. You've got to be prepared. And he's going to continue to say that here's why they're false teachers. And he's going to break down for us in a section where their character went bad. What happened? What is it that makes them a false teacher? Where in their heart, what are they stocking on the shelves of their heart that makes them bad, makes them false? And then he's going to shift his attention and say, how does that begin to infiltrate and affect everybody that's around them, just like a distribution center. What goes in is ultimately going to come out. And Peter's going to say, look, externally, you've got to know how to handle that, but there's a warning in this passage. I'm going to be really honest with you. It rocked me. As I was studying and preparing for this, this is not just something you look out into other people to try to identify false teachers. Peter is saying, no, you've got to look really deep into your own heart because it's really easy to gradually become a false teacher yourself. And so Peter's going to instruct us. He starts out saying, where did the character go bad? And we're going to look at verses 10 through 16. They'll be up on the screen for you if you want to look up here. He says, bold and willful, these false teachers, they, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters that they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression when a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, if you're new to church, you're like, dude, this is getting really weird. I promise we're going to explain it. In verses 10 through 13, he says, here's where it starts, guys. Here's where it starts in them, so you have context, but here's where it can start in you if you're not careful. He says they ignore the spiritual world and the spiritual forces that are around them. So they have no regard whatsoever for the fact that the way in which they're living their lives, what they're stocking on the the shelves of their heart, has potential to make them pray for evil, and he says angels. These evil angels that are around them working. As a matter of fact, they don't care for them whatsoever. They ridicule them. Not only do they say, not only do we not believe that they're there, just forget it. We're not even paying attention. What's happened here is they're tunnel visioned. They've got tunnel vision. They become so focused on what they want, when they want it, how they want it, that they're incapable of seeing the world that's going on around them. They don't know what's going on around them spiritually or physically. All they care about is getting what they want 
when they want it. Peter's point here is that these false teachers, they completely ignore the spiritual harm that's being done to them and will ultimately, because it's being done to them, happen to the people that are around them. Because Peter is saying what goes in is going to come out. And when you put things in your life that will spiritually harm you, you will inevitably spiritually harm other people. C.S. Lewis, again, to quote uh, screw tape letters two weeks in a row, he said it this way. I love the way he says it. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which the human race can fall about the devil. So we fall short when we think about the evil spiritual realm. He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he says two things. One, people obsess about evil and obsess about the spiritual realm, the, the evil spiritual realm that's around them. The other side of this is that they ignore it altogether. And either way, Satan wants you doing one or the other. And what Peter is saying here is when you become a false teacher, what happens is you start to disregard the fact that when you participate in certain, certain things, when you allow certain things into your life, it will ultimately have this negative effect on you. And you make yourself a prey for evil forces. It's a reality that's going on around you. So it's first, they ignore the spiritual reality. Then he says, when this happens, your character itself begins to get corrupted. Why? Because evil has now impacted you. Evil now has an influence over you, and it will begin to corrupt and shape and mold your character the way it wants to. And he says there's three dominant things in our passage we just read that are character traits that come about from somebody who allows evil things around them to influence them. The first is, he says, it's sensuality and lust. And Peter said, their eyes are full of adultery that is insatiable. This is describing people that are so consumed with lust that they cannot even look at another person without thinking about sex. Now, in this room, that, that's not uncommon to us. You think about it. We live in a culture that has so much exposure to pornography that underestimates how great this, this evil thing has an influence on people. But people that become addicted to this, giving into lust, giving into insatiable lust, by way of pornography, begin to view people as objects. They can't look at somebody. It becomes the grid by which they interact with other human beings. You can't talk to somebody. You can't think about somebody. You can't go somewhere. You can't interact and live a normal life because you're so consumed. You're so tunnel vision focused on your lust. And you think, how did I get here? Well, it started by ignoring the fact that this could have had an evil impact on you and continually exposing yourself to it and allowing it to influence who you're becoming. Now you're completely consumed by it. Oh, it's not a big deal. Lust is not that big a deal. I'm not hurting anybody. You're not hurting anybody. We have more slaves in the world today than in any generation in the history of our planet combined as a result of sexual slavery. It's not a problem. See, Satan gets his grips on you slowly. And before you know it, you're stocking the shelves of your heart with lust, and it's influencing everything else around you. And then he says this. The second thing is greed. He says that they have, they are, their hearts are trained in greed. Their heart, they have stocked on the shelves of their heart greed. And they're so focused on it. Here's the word that he uses. He uses the Greek word gymnazo. Everyone say gymnazo. That you can guess the English word gymnasium. It's where we get our English word. What it means is they intentionally put time into focusing on their greed. They develop the skill for greed, if you will. So now, somebody who just wants something and wants something and wants something, it becomes a spiritual blind spot. You've ignored anything that would pull you away from it, and you pursue greed. Specifically, he's talking about money. You just want money. 
I want financial success. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be financially successful. I'm going to chase money. Money will control me. And he says, you train yourself in greed, meaning you can manipulate any situation or any person that gets in your way to ultimately get to your objective. You're very well trained in greed. The third one that he says is arrogance. And this comes out and they, they don't just ignore the spiritual realm, they ridicule it. And it says, and Peter says here, he says that they forsake the way of righteousness. Not only do they acknowledge that it's there, they don't want any part of it. Because arrogantly, these are the type of people that you would say, you can't tell me. Don't call me. I might have some spiritual blind spots, but I'm not going to listen to you when you try to tell me about these. I know better for me. I know what's right for me, and I'm not going to allow anybody else around me to tell me how I should be living my life. I know everything I need to be doing. I know everything I need to be pursuing. There's this arrogance that sets in. Now, the reason Peter points these out is he wants people to understand that these things don't just happen. They progress and get to this point. Why? You start ignoring the spiritual reality around you. You start focusing on what you want in your life, stocking the shelves of your heart with what you want, and all of a sudden your character is deformed and changed. And in an effort to get his people to really understand this, Peter uses this illustration of Balaam. Balaam, his story can be found in Numbers chapter 22. You can read it later. Honestly, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, It sounds funny because it is kind of funny. Balaam was called by God to go and bless the Israelite people. They were growing in number and influence. And there were some neighboring uh, kingdoms that were really threatened by this, particularly the Moabites. So the king of Moab, he goes to Balaam. He looks and he sees something in Balaam that triggers in him the thought that he might be able to influence Balaam not to do a blessing but a curse. So they go to Balaam and they say, we'll get, we will make you a wealthy man. You will be extremely rich if you will do a curse instead of a blessing on the Israelites. So Balaam saddles his donkey and he's on his way. And along the way, the angel of the Lord appears to punish him, to get his attention. Again, here's the principle. Balaam was so focused on his greed He completely misses the spiritual reality around him, but the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in front of him. So the donkey says, I'm going to go left. So he goes left to avoid. Balaam doesn't understand. He didn't see the angel of the Lord. He hits the donkey, and the donkey doesn't appreciate it. So they keep going. The angel of the Lord appears in front of the donkey again. The donkey says, I'm going to go right. So he goes right to get away from him. And again, Balaam hits the donkey. What are you doing? I want to get where I'm going. I'm focused. I'm tunnel vision focused on my greed. Get me where I'm going. Now the angel of the Lord appears in front of the donkey in a tight place. And the text actually tells us there was no going right, there was no going left. And the, don- and the angel of the Lord had a sword drawn. So the donkey did what the don- only thing he could do. He just fell over. So he just falls over. Then Balaam's really angry because he still can't see what's going on. He's so focused on his greed that he starts to beat the donkey. And then the donkey talks to him in Eddie Murphy's voice. I'm just kidding. That would be awesome. That movie's completely ruined it. Every time I read this now, that's all I'm seeing. And I know you are too. You see Shrek. All right? So he gets off the donkey, and he beats the donkey. He says, what are you doing? And the donkey says, why are you hitting me? You're, and this is my translation. You're so blinded by your greed, you're missing the fact that the angel of the Lord is about to kill you, dude. You're so blinded by your greed, you're spiritually about to die. But you can't see it because you're so tunnel vision focused Because all you've done is stock on the shelves of your heart is greed, greed, greed. And immediately, Peter's audience is going to just click onto this. Man. But here's the thing. Externally, you see it. Internally, it's a reality, too. So Peter wants us to see on the shelves of our heart. It's easy to take things 
like gossip. And we might say, hey, gossip's not a big deal, just a little one. They're just words. It's just my opinions. It's just, I'm just being honest. I'm just keeping it real. And what you don't know is that those words stocking on the shelves of your heart will ultimately manifest themselves in defaming somebody else's character or reputation or their very livelihood because of your words. Maybe you're somebody who battles anger because somebody did something to you in the past and you're angry and the world owes you something. And so for years you have just put in your heart, on your heart, the shells of your heart, this anger, this frustration, and it has continued to consume you. And you've got tunnel vision. We've got a couple more here, I think, if I can get them. Maybe you're somebody who's pursuing pleasure. And look, I'm, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. In a room like this, maybe some of you are addicted to pornography. And all that, you, you don't think it's a big deal and that it's affecting you, but it's having this incredible influence on the lives of the people around you. But you're so focused, you can't see it. It's become a spiritual blind spot for you. And the only thing you know is to continue to pursue that pleasure. And Peter's going to tell us what happens as we continue to pursue that. But maybe it's not pleasure for you, and maybe it's not anger for you. Maybe instead for you, it's pride. Be honest, this is one that I've stocked on the shelf of my heart. Maybe for you, it's don't tell me how to live my life. I've got this vision. I know what's right for me. No one else is allowed to speak to me. I've got it figured out. I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm all about. So you don't correct me, and you don't tell me how to live my life. And the last one's just stuck. Here's another one we battle with. Greed. Look, this one, this one is easy. I very rarely have had anybody come into my office to meet with me and say, hey, I think I'm battling greed. It just kind of slips in. And maybe like Balaam, we are just focused. We have saddled the donkey. We are riding toward the end goal, and we're not going to let anybody tell us any different because I want what I want when I want it. Last, maybe it's lies for you. You just picture this heart and you wonder, how did it get to this? How, how did it get to this? How is it that I'm manifesting these things in my life? How is it that these things are pouring out into my relationships? And Peter is screaming and saying, hey, there's a spiritual battle going on all around you. And Satan wants you to ignore it so you keep stockpiling in your life, these things, in your heart, so that they would manifest themselves. How does it get to this point? Because look, what you expose yourself to, the Bible's very clear, what you allow in, what you watch, what you listen to, what you talk about, what you expose yourself to will ultimately find its way to your heart. And the shells of your heart are waiting to be stocked. They will be stocked with something. And like a distribution center, what goes in is going to come out both in word and in action. And Peter says it doesn't just come out in action. It starts to infiltrate and, and really influence the lives of everybody that are around you. He continues and he says this is how that happens in verse 17. These things, these pursuits, they are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. They, they, they just leave you thirsty for more. What he's saying is there's a hole in the bottom of every one of those buckets being drained. And because you're continually thirsty for more, you have to keep feeding it to keep it full. And so he says it just leaves you thirsty for more. For them, when you do this, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. This, it ends in your doom. It's a vicious cycle that just hurts the people that are around you. For speaking loud boasts of folly, 
they entice or they seduce, your text might say. It's the idea of fishing or hunting where you literally put bait out there for a week or prey to come. He says, by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So there's some weaker Christians, and when you pursue these things, you go after them naturally. I'll talk about that in just a moment. He says this, you promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state is, better than the, is worse for them than the first state. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to have turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true, what the true proverb says has been true to them, has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Here's, here's his point. These pursuits, they leave you empty. But here's the thing, as you begin to become spiritually unaware of what's going on around you, and you stock the shelves of your heart with these things, at the very same moment you're focused on these things, lost in all of this, you were still wired and created for community. Our God is a God of relationships, and so no matter how far you get from him, there is a part of you that desires healthy relationships. So when all you are is pursuing these things in tunnel vision, you still desperately want relationships, and so you do the only thing you know how to do is you start to bait other people to participate in your sin so that you can have the best of both worlds. You can continue to live the way you want to live, but at the same time, you can have that relational void that only God should be feeling filled. But what happens is you realize you're hurting people, you're damaging people. Those relationships aren't as fulfilling as you had hoped. And so you continually return to these things broken, hoping that somehow this is going to fix you and satisfy you. And Peter says it's just a vicious cycle of emptiness. It's a vicious cycle of emptiness, continually pursuing these things. You put it in, it settles in your heart, it comes out, and you leave people in your wake. Then I love what he says in verse 19. He says, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So the very thing that consumes you, that you are overcome by, you are enslaved to. These things that you don't think are a big deal that you have in your life, that you think, oh, you're being way too strict about that. That's just not that big of a deal. Before you know it consumes you, and you're enslaved to it. You have to do what it tells you to do because you desire that feeling or you desire that relationship or you desire that pleasure or that greed or that anger. And Peter says you've got to watch out for these things. I had somebody in my group, uh, my discipleship group this past week, point out something interesting to me. They said the very things the very things that we have freedom in Christ to pursue, if we're not careful, will enslave us to them instead of Jesus. So you have freedom in Christ to pursue a lot of things. God wants, man, God wants you to have life and have it abundantly, but the very things you're free in Christ to pursue, if you're not careful, will consume you and enslave you to them instead of him. And Peter is saying, watch what you put in your heart because it's going to come out. Now here's what I think of when I think of being consumed and enslaved. I don't know, my mind just goes to this. I, I always think of the Apostle Paul. If you're new to church, the Apostle Paul, um, we would call him the greatest missionary that ever lived. You see, in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9, we kind of are introduced to him. He's this guy that did not like the Christians, and he was just enraged with them. He wanted to kill them all. And so he goes on this tunnel-visioned pursuit with anger, stockpiling the shells of his heart. He pursues the destruction of these Christians. And much like Balaam, he saddles 
his horse, not a donkey, didn't talk to him, but he, he's on a mission for this city called Damascus. And along the way, much like Balaam, he's confronted with God, knocked off the horse. And from that moment, he goes into Damascus and he meets a man named Ananias who baptizes him. He becomes a Christian. He's living. And all of a sudden, everything that was consuming Paul changes. He's a different man because of it. As a matter of fact, he is so consumed with Jesus, it just spills out in everything that he does. And I love this. When you read Paul's letters, he'll use this terminology. I, Paul, a servant, a bondservant, or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I'm a slave of Jesus because I'm consumed with Jesus. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul would write this, everything I've accomplished in my life, and he lists incredible accomplishments out. All these things I've pursued, all these things I've attained, they're rubbish, they're garbage, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. You see, for Paul didn't happen overnight. He slowly allowed the Lord to work on his heart. And as the Lord worked on his heart, he began to change him. And what we learn here from Peter is if you're not careful, your heart will be stockpiled with the wrong things. But if you'll allow him, Jesus will take your heart. And only Jesus can take a heart of pride, change it to humility. See, only Jesus can take your anger and give you the ability to forgive. The only the power of the gospel in your life, allowing the Lord to have more and more of your life, takes you from someone who pursues pleasure to someone who's characterized by discipline. It's Jesus who can take your greed and turn you into someone who's generous. See, Peter wants us to know, if you look at Paul, he's somebody who was exposed to lies but allowed God to replace it with his truth. And then you become someone who slanders people, uses your words. You slowly begin to speak life. You see, Peter wants us to know that it's only the power of Jesus in your life, only the gospel that's in your life that can, one, prevent you from becoming a false teacher, but two, take somebody who has stockpiled the, the shelves of their heart with lies and with anger and with gossip and with greed, and he can change you from the inside out, and it can begin to pour into the lives of the people that are around you, and your life can have purpose and meaning beyond anything you ever dreamed. Now, all of that to say this, how do we walk out of here anything but inspired? I don't know about you, but this inspires me. As I'm thinking about it and reading, I'm like, I'm so inspired, but what now? What's the next thing? How do I step up with this, Rob? How do I walk out of here changed? And here's a truth I really want you to understand. Blind spots make it really difficult to do a self-check. Blind spots make it difficult to do a self-check. It's really hard to just look at yourself when you have spiritual blind spots. Remember this truth. You are enslaved by the things that consume you. You are consumed by what is stacked on the shelves of your heart. If this is true, you may have developed some blind spots along the way. And you can't rely on yourself to see all your blind spots. Let me illustrate it for you this way. It's a serious illustration, but it's, it's just real life. March 5th, 2005, March 6th, 2005, my wife and I flew up from central Florida we were working, uh, we were seniors in college, um, in, in Florida Christian College. We flew up here, we were engaged, and we came up here to plan some of our wedding. And we were in the airport, and um, I'm carrying her bags and my bags, and she's trying to coordinate with her dad, who was trying to pull up. And I feel pressure, like I knew her dad, but I'm like, uh-oh, I'm not even married to this girl yet, I better do a good job. You know, all that pressure you feel, and I'm like carrying all her stuff, and I'm looking out 
waiting for him to come, and my cell phone rings. And I pick up my cell phone, and it's my mom. And she's on the other line, and she's like, hey. She starts to tell me, like, something that's really bugging her. And she's kind of, I can tell in her voice she was upset. And she really wanted to talk. But I'm, like, juggling bags, and I'm like, uh, my, my future wife's here, my future father-in-law, who I'm scared to death of, is right, he's about to pull up, and if he has to circle around, I don't know, is he going to kill me? Can I still marry her? All this stuff's going through your head, right? And I'm like, uh, my mom, I, hey, mom, let me call you back. I'll call you in a couple, yeah, come on, just let me call you back. And she kept going, kept going. I said, mom, I don't have time, click. And I loaded our bags, and we went. And she died that night in her sleep. And those are the last words that I ever spoke to her. Now, I, I've worked through it. I genuinely, I want you to know that. I, I know that she knows that I loved her deeply, and I know that she loved me deeply. There's peace around that. She was a Christian. I know she's in heaven. I can't wait to see her. Look, I, 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 all that's true. But I had a spiritual blind spot. For the longest time, I'd been stocking on the shelf of my heart an ego. An ego that said that my agenda was more important than the next person's. And over the years, this was quite a few years ago, I've uh, allowed certain people that I'm very close to to begin to speak into my life. And one of the things they pointed out is, Rob, you got a spiritual blind spot. When you get set on something, man, sometimes you forget about people. And they reminded me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, the apostle Paul wrote, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider other people more important than you. And by the grace of God, genuinely, God has taken that and he's turned it. And I'm not perfect by any means. If you know me, you know that. <laughs> but I've made it my mission to make ministry about people. It's relational. I've made my life's mission about pouring into the people that are around me because I had a spiritual blind spot that other people had the courage to step up and point out in my life. And as long as I am a minister at this church, this church will always be about people, connecting people to Jesus, the only one that can change them. As long as I'm here, we will not be driven by programs and budgets and buildings though programs and budgets and buildings will support our pursuit of connecting people to their Heavenly Father. Because somebody had the courage to point out one of my spiritual blind spots. Here's my point. When you walk out of here, I want you this week in the next seven days to step up and have the courage to allow somebody else to speak truth into your life. I want you to be willing to go to them and say, will you please help me see what might be a spiritual blind spot in my life? Husbands and wives, single people, Young people, old people, go to somebody that you trust and that you love after praying about it and ask them to ask you, I'm going to give you two questions that you can take with you this week that I think will reveal to you, if you'll allow it, what you're stocking on the shelves of your heart. First question is this. How do I come across in our interactions? It's a very clear indicator of what you're pursuing. Husbands, allow your wives to answer that. Wives, allow your husbands to answer that. Young people, find a close friend. Single people, go to somebody you trust and love. Everybody can ask that question to somebody that they trust and they care about. How is it that I come across when we interact with one another? And then listen. It's going to be so hard to listen. Listen to what they say. Learn from what they say. Go to multiple people. It's easy to find the people that will answer the way you want them to. Have the courage to step up and go to the one who's going to tell you the truth. The next question. What would you say is the most important to me and why? If you had to say what I've saddled my donkey or the horse and I'm pursuing and I'm going after, 
Help me see what it is so that I'm not blind to what's going on all around me. Here's the deal. Let me give you a couple warnings, guys. Uh, I'm going to get you back here for a minute. Wives, please don't go home and say to your husband, the preacher said, you're supposed to ask me this question, so I'm going to go ahead and answer it before you ask it. Here's 27 things on the shelves of your heart that you better get off because he told you we're not doing that. Wives, I'm going to ask you to be patient with your husband. This isn't easy for guys. It's not easy. I'm going to ask you to sit and be patient with him. Wait for him to come to you and ask the question. And when he does, I don't want you to respond. I just want you to listen and hear his heart. It takes a lot of courage for a man to come to his wife and ask that question and then hear from his wife and hear for young people to hear from someone they trust and love so that they can see what it is that's on the shelves of their heart. Here's the thing, though, husbands. I'm going to challenge you. I want you to step up. Don't chicken out. She's being patient. She's being patient. You step up. You ask the question. You have the conversation with one another. Young people, old people, married people, single people, everybody has somebody that you can ask these questions to. Because here's the deal. I'm convinced of it based on what Peter's taught us. It's not worth it, man. It's not worth it. It's not worth pursuing something at the detriment of our spiritual life and the lives of the people that are around us because it is true that what goes in is going to come out. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song and close out our services. I pray that you can use the words of this next song here as a prayer. And honestly, real life, it's hard. I'm not, I'm not asking you to come up during the song. If you want to, that's great. I'll be up here. But after the service, we've got a few elders. We'll be hanging out. We would love nothing more than to talk to you and pray with you. Um, as you sort through this idea of what's on the shelf of my heart, it's going to come out and influence everyone around me. Let's pray together. Father.